Welcome to Sentient Planet. One of the things I think is a, a way of thinking about it is to say, if my life requires others to suffer, then my life is not mine alone. That I also owe a duty to those who suffer for my existence. Hello, I'm Susan Woodward, your host and creator. As 2021 comes to a close, I'm so very happy to bring you another season of the Sentient Planet podcast, broadcast from the beautiful and progressive Pacific Northwest region of the USA. It's been a big year for our small production team since launching this project on Earth Day a few months ago. I want to take a moment to thank our guests so far, Tyson Younger-Porter, Joanne MacArthur, Carl Safina, Susan Murphy-Roshi, and many more. And to thank you, our listeners, for supporting our efforts to raise awareness about the non-human sentient life forms all around us, and the right of all animals everywhere to live on the earth without fear of harm from humans. As always, I hope you'll follow us on socials and take a moment to write a quick podcast review. It really helps more people find us. And we would be very grateful if you supported our work on patreon.com slash sentientplanet. Okay, on with the show, our first episode for Season 3. Today's guest is the vegan writer, photographer, and lover of all creatures, Lucas Spiegel. Add to the list world traveler, Lucas quit his job as an architect in North America to spend nearly two years journeying through Asia, Europe, and Australia volunteering on animal sanctuaries along the way. Observing new cultures led to a deeply personal exploration of what it would take to live a truly ethical, meaningful life in an increasingly complex and interrelated world. One result is an exquisite new travel memoir, The Weight of Empathy. I can't say enough good things about this book and what Lucas has to offer, his outstanding imagery and philosophical insight into our relationship with animals, food, and each other. You can check it out at weightofempathy.com. A print copy is just 20 bucks, and Lucas is offering free holiday shipping through the end of the year. Just use the code LOVE2021. Here's the sensitive and strong soul who is Lucas Spiegel. Lucas. Welcome to Sentient Planet. I'm really grateful for you coming on the show, and I'm excited to talk to you today. I'm excited to talk to you, too. Thanks for having me. So where did you grow up? Who is your family, and where does your love of animals stem from? I grew up uh, in mostly very small towns in Colorado and Missouri. Yeah, I just grew up in the kind of in the countryside uh, with my mother and brother and had a small family. We always had dogs and cats and spent a lot of time, I don't know, exploring in the forests and yeah, just appreciating all the, the wildlife and collecting bugs and rocks and things like that, like a country boy. And yeah, I think that's where I found my, my love of animals at first, especially you know, bonding with the pets in our family. 
near the start of your book, you tell the story of accidentally eating the family's favourite chicken, Henny Penny. This was a transformational moment for you. Can you recount the story and the lesson it brought you? Yeah, I would say more than transformational in and of itself, it laid the groundwork for some transformation later in my life. Uh, I was only about six at the time, so I had limited ability to really process the experience. But we had some chickens who we ate when I was growing up in the countryside in Missouri. You know, I loved them. I loved spending time with them in their uh, area with the chicken coop where the, the woods started and watching them peck around and scratch and holding them and following them around. And, you know, there's some sort of distance that you have between yourself and animals you're keeping and eating. Of course, some of them stood out uh, because they, you know, they had a distinctive look to them. This particular chicken, she would never sleep in the chicken coop. Um, She would always come up onto the back porch and she would roost up on the back porch overnight and really made herself noticed in that way. And so we ended up giving her name, uh, Henny Penny, as you say. One day we were putting the chickens to bed and realized Henny Penny was not up on the back porch and wasn't anywhere to be found. And we realized that the chicken that we ate the previous day must have been Henny Penny, our favorite chicken. As I said, I was only six, but it was a powerful enough experience, a moment that it stuck with me to this day, many decades later. I was unsure how to process it. I kind of just followed my mother's lead and she seemed to think it was no big deal. You know, I didn't even know if maybe she knew who we had eaten and didn't want to tell us or if she didn't realize herself. Yeah, it was, I guess, a lesson in terms of how easy it is for something something horrible to be normalized, especially as a child, you know, in the context of your community or your family, whatever is normal in that situation, it just seems normal to you. Additionally, it was it was a lesson about the power and sort of the necessity of cognitive dissonance, a break between your love of an animal and how you treat them when you're killing them and eating them. And that that's really uh, necessary in order for you to continue with that behavior, behavior that doesn't align with your values. Right. So, so your mother was preparing your meals, I take it. And so she also was butchering the chickens that fed your family. Yeah, exactly. You know, she loved the chickens as well. You know, she ate meat. It wasn't until she was in her 60s that she stopped eating animals. You know, when she was a child, she learned this lesson that you need meat every day in order to be healthy. That's what the lesson she learned from her family and community when she grew up. Yeah, eventually we all reassessed, you know, these, uh, these values and behaviors that were passed down to us. Another thing that I mention uh, in that part of the book is how when I was a child, I used to think that meat was this distinct component of an animal's body that humans did not share. Like, I didn't know that meat was just muscle tissue. I just constructed this story in my head to make sense of it. And the only way to make sense of us 
killing and eating these animals we love and are connected with is if they are so fundamentally different than us that there's this part of their body that is made to be eaten <laughs> that right. we don't share. That's so interesting. So that's the story that you constructed. That's the narrative you constructed to be able to continue eating them. And then you came back to contemplate and think about uh, that experience that you had as a child, obviously as an adult, and reflect upon it more. You started your career as an architect, but you left this and many other things behind in 2016 to travel around the world. Lucas, tell me about how you came to embark on your journey. What were you seeking? Well, I wasn't really seeking anything. I was older. I was, uh, I guess, 39 at the time. And I kind of figured I was old enough that I didn't need to go out on one of these voyages to find myself. I figured I, I kind of knew myself pretty well by that point. But I was living in Vancouver, Canada, and I decided not to stay there for a handful of reasons. I didn't have a job that I needed to worry about coming back to. You know, I didn't have a mortgage or a family or a dog or anything else. And I just figured I might not always have that flexibility and the opportunity. I, you know, saved some money for the first time in my life and wanted to see the world. So one result of this couple of years that you spent traveling uh, through many countries around the world is this beautiful travel memoir that you've written that was published this year. It's called The Weight of Empathy. I found it to be a beautifully written, very thought-provoking account of your travels and also the deeper philosophies that they stirred in you. It seems like there's so much story packed into just the cover photos and dedication. On the back cover, there's the bulls in the streets of what you call the world's first vegetarian city. That sounds really intriguing. And you went there. What was that all about? Yeah, I had heard about this city when I was volunteering at um, an elephant sanctuary in Thailand. Another volunteer there, I don't think she had been there, but she had been in India and heard about this city that was completely vegetarian. So I looked it up and there was really kind of minimal information about it. A few years earlier, there was this series of hunger strikes from these basically local holy men demanding that the city be vegetarian. Just for some context, it's one of the most holy pilgrimage sites for the Jain religion. That's J-A-I-N, which is this really interesting, this very, very interesting philosophy about nonviolence. The way that they determine who to avoid harming uh, in terms of different organisms or plants or animals is basically how many senses that organism has. So if an organism has the sense of sight and smell and touch and hearing, then they might be considered more sentient. Hmm. I had heard about them when I was a teenager, just first kind of experimenting or learning about ideas of nonviolence and never hadn't really made the connection or, or known anything about them. Famously, the monks will brush the sidewalk in front of them before they take each step so that they don't step on any tiny creatures or bugs. They'll also wear sort of a cloth scarf around their face so they don't breathe in any microorganisms. And they even go so far as to um, not eat food that is left overnight because of things that might have grown overnight on it that they don't, then don't want to consume. 
So they're taking this the whole idea of doing no harm to an incredible degree. Yes, in some ways it is like a more extreme, if you want to say use that word, version of veganism. In other ways, it can also look religiously dogmatic as sort of following the letter of the law without really updating those views for the modern context. So that is kind of one thing that I found out when I went there. And the city, it's called Palitana. It's in Gujarat state in Western India. I went there and, you know, I went to the, the temples. Um, there's, you know, thousands of Jain temples in this town. Beautiful place, also crazy place. Everywhere in India is beautiful and crazy. And I really just wanted to sort of get a sense of it. You know, is there bitterness from the non-vegetarian residents that they they can't buy or sell meat in the city? Well, I didn't find any of that bitterness, at least, you know, in my few days there. So the city became vegetarian because the monks protested? Yeah, it's one of the most holy cities for this religion whose core foundational principle is you know, doing no harm. It's illegal to sell or buy uh, meat or to raise animals that are meant to be slaughtered in the city limits. Hmm. Interesting place, but it is also not the kind of utopia that you might imagine when you hear about the all-vegetarian city. There's still stray dogs everywhere on the streets who are starving and eating garbage and, you know, walking around with untreated wounds and illnesses. The same for stray cows. There's also horses being used to pull tourists around in carts. Also, there is a, a buffalo dairy operation that I spent some time at. Because everything is kind of out in the open in India, I was literally just walking down the side street and there's this small buffalo dairy operation. I could basically just walk right in, throw a, a fake smile at the guys who were working there. They allowed me to spend a little time with the buffalo and to take some photographs. As with any dairy, you have the babies separated from their mothers. You know, in this case, they were all tied up or chained up mm. all day long, every day. So it was heartbreaking and it was illuminating. I mean, that's one of the things that keeps me coming back to India is you just see things like this that you don't see anywhere else in the world. So it's so interesting. So the citizens don't eat meat, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are treating animals well. Yeah. And, you know, you can go outside the city limits and you find somebody who will sell you meat. I would say is probably only supported by the broader population because they all recognize the huge number of Jane pilgrims who come to the city every year is probably the biggest source of revenue for the people who live there. Mm. And so they don't want to alienate them as well. It was interesting to see that this kind of larger scale regulation against meat is actually possible and happening, but also that it is very limited. Right. That it doesn't really matter what kinds of regulations you can put in place if the public sentiment is against those regulations. You need some ethical and rational consensus that abusing and killing animals is a bad thing in order to have sustainable progress against these 
difficult is. Right. And of course, um, having widespread consensus on that is not a place that we're at yet. Lucas, you're not the first person to take off with a one-way ticket to explore the world, of course, but blending veganism with travel and exploring how the two intertwine, that's quite unique. As you describe your journey into different cultures and your observations of the way people treat animals, you also travel more deeply into your personal relationship with conscious eating. Your first port of call was Tasmania, Australia, uh, perhaps an unconventional choice. What happened down there? Oh, Tassie, of course, <laughs> as you know, is an incredibly gorgeous part of the world. Especially when I started my trip, I was just going on really uh, random tips from friends and acquaintances. Back in Vancouver, I had an Australian roommate who told me, if you're going to Australia, then go to Tasmania. But yeah, in Tasmania, I was uh, woofing, which is... Um, like working for room and board on um, a small permaculture farm, um, living with a small family. That was fascinating, taking care of their animals and gardening and doing random projects. There was also just really fortuitously down the road a farm animal sanctuary called Brightside, which is to this day one of the most lovely sanctuaries I've ever been to. It's just such a gorgeous, magical place. All of the animals are just always intermingled. There always seems to be a chicken who is like roosting on top of a pig who <laughs> doesn't <laughs> mind at all. And just, I don't know, it's a, a beautiful place. And then, yeah, just exploring the natural beauty of Tasmania. It was just mind-blowing, even coming from the Pacific Northwest, Oregon and Vancouver. I'm used to natural beauty, but the ratio of sort of human population to natural yeah. beauty is just off the charts. It is. <laughs> I have people tell me, oh, you're going to, you know, this national park, like everybody goes there, you know, it's going to be so crowded, you know, and I would go to this national park and there's like two cars in the parking lot. And that's a know? crowd. <laughs> yeah. I, as with most places I went, even the more crowded places around the world, if you take 20 or 30 minutes to hike past where where 90% of people go, then you usually have the place to yourself. So how long did you stay uh, doing working on that homestead there? A month, a little more than a month. And then I went up to uh, mainland Australia, did a, a little uh, camper van road trip from Melbourne up to uh, Brisbane, checked out all the the nice beaches and national parks. And yeah, it was lovely. Yeah, that's, a, that's certainly a beautiful part of the world. So next you went to Japan. You learned about Itadakizen in Kyoto. Can you explain to us this approach to eating and why followers of Itadakizen don't eat animals? Yeah, just to clarify, it wasn't in Kyoto. It was another homestay in uh, Fukui Prefecture, which is just uh, west, northwest of Kyoto. 
yeah, again, I was I was woofing, uh, helping out this and living with this family in this very, very small uh, village in rural Japan. There was only six houses in the village and four of them were vacant. So it was uh, one of the more <laughs> peaceful and quiet places I've ever been. So beautiful. The people I was living with and working for, they were part of what's called Itataki Zen. They are vegan. But again, another novel and interesting sort of rationale for how they got there. There might be a lot lost in translation, but from my conversations and how I have somewhat been able to understand it myself, the premise is basically that everything that we eat has its own spirit. And animals have a much stronger spirit than plants. So when we eat something, that spirit sort of disrupts our own. And so when we eat animals, that disruption is much larger. I think the way that they would say it, or at least translate it into English for me, is to say that the only way that we can really come to know ourselves and from there to expand into a world that is a peaceful place is by having our spirit be as pure as possible, which means not doing these things like eating animals that disrupts that spirit. Hmm. It's a, a little bit foreign for me. I'm not an a-spiritual person, but yeah, I just have a very different experience and, and sort of approach or philosophy, but it was, it was really fascinating to hear different people sort of coming to the same end point, at least in terms of behavior and eating habits from really different perspectives. You also traveled through several countries in Southeast Asia. I'm interested in your observations of meat eating in these largely Buddhist countries. It seems so contradictory. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, this is one part of my travel planning that was maybe not as well thought out as uh, it could have been. I was traveling, like I said, based on a lot of random advice and information from people and on the internet. And so some places I knew there was a lot of vegan food to eat. And I figured, well, I can pretty much be safe if I just travel to like largely Buddhist countries because they'll have at least some traditional forms of vegetarian eating. Like even in Japan, the sort of Zen monastic cooking is traditionally uh, essentially vegan, even though that is not how... 99.9% of people eat in modern-day Japan. They still have those, those underpinnings to their cuisine, and so a lot of vegan foods are available mm-hmm. and part of the food landscape. So I figured that it couldn't be any worse than that, but I came to find out that basically there was no consensus among different sects of Buddhism around what you shall or shall not eat, and that there are a lot of places like Cambodia and Myanmar where there was simply no prohibition against eating meat among Buddhists. And then other places like Vietnam is also largely Buddhist, but it's also the, you know a communist country where a lot of people are not religious at all, or they follow um, some local folk religions. Additionally, even people who are Buddhists are not necessarily strictly practicing in the... Um, the promises to reduce suffering. Yeah. And, you know, similar to a lot of Jains who, you know, maybe eat dairy, even though it causes an incredible amount of suffering, 
sort of follow the letter of the law as opposed to the spirit. And for people who are not Buddhist monks, you know, in Vietnam, that means either you just eat meat all the time or you only abstain twice a month during the, the new moon and the full moon. That w- was a very interesting situation in terms of what kind of food was available. It meant that any regular restaurant you go to, there's pretty much going to be meat in everything. But there are also Buddhist vegetarian restaurants. It was very interesting navigating what kinds of food were available to me and also getting a sense for how these traditions and religions inform people's behavior and the way they they view and treat animals. Yeah, so cognitive dissonance alive and well in all sorts of different cultures and uh, religious backgrounds. There seems to be a paradox in the world right now. On one hand, veganism and plant-based diets are exploding in popularity. On the other, meat consumption is also increasing worldwide. What, What are your thoughts on this? Hard to wrap my head around, honestly. I mean, one of the random uh, moments of my trip uh, in this regard was actually traveling in Denmark, and I was at a train station, and they were selling vegan Ben and Jerry's ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) And this was the first time I'd actually seen it in person. Mm. And I'm a a huge ice cream person. (laughs) This is like how I judge vegan cuisine around the world is like (laughs) what kind of vegan ice cream is available. This was a huge moment for me in that regard. I mean, I remember many years ago when my brother stopped eating dairy, he ate an entire pint of Haagen-Dazs coffee ice cream because he's like, it's like, I might as well like go out with a bang. Yeah, I just never, I never would have expected to see this, the mainstream availability of alternatives like this. And so, yeah, I I was by myself, cold in Denmark, and I bought an entire pint of Chunky Monkey Ben & Jerry's vegan ice cream and ate it all myself in one sitting and, you know, shed a few tears. It's just amazing how things have developed in recent years. And at the same time, as you say, you know, meat eating is exploding as people in developing countries gain some wealth or buying power and, you know, are emulating the eating practices of the West, for one thing, and just overall global population increasing. You know, sometimes people talk about in the the long history of humanity, things are getting better and better. And, you know, that is true on many counts. But the advent of factory farming and intensive animal agriculture has really accelerated our ability to essentially kill and torture non-human animals on on a scale that is truly unfathomable. And so it it is a hard thing to to reconcile the two of them together. It's a really crazy time. Well, let's, let's go a little deeper into this. There's a quote from your book that really struck me. We kill more animals for food in a single day than all the humans who have died in all the wars in the history of the planet. I've got no reason to doubt that that's factual. You have an emotional connection to animals, that's clear. But there's also this quite simple fact that animals by sheer numbers bear the brunt of the suffering on the planet. And that's what's driving your advocacy, or that's what helps to drive your advocacy in their direction. You also talk about your personal 
quote, suffering footprint and suffering debt, end quote, and your duty to reduce if not absolve them. Can you elaborate on what you mean by suffering footprint and suffering debt and what you're trying to do with those? The concept of a, a suffering footprint, you know, it's essentially all of the suffering that is caused by one's life. Anytime you consume something, resources are extracted, products and food and items are transported. Whether you're a vegan or a meat eater. Yes, uh, there's, you know, generally some form of worker exploitation. There's small animals who get killed in the fields and, you know, anything is harvested. It's just impossible to escape. And that, that's why veganism is not, does not make one perfect or a saint. It is just um, an attempt to minimize that suffering footprint. That language, at least, is something I find really a useful way to think about our effect in the world. And that's something that was coined, I believe, by uh, a friend of mine I met traveling um, when I volunteered at his animal sanctuary in India, a man named Robin, who helped co-found an animal sanctuary and organic farm called People Farm. That's P-E-E-P-A-L, after the people tree. As I continued to, to think over these things, I realized that I have also what I would call a suffering debt, which is essentially equal to my suffering footprint over all of the years of my life. That suffering footprint was higher before I stopped eating animals, but I've had one my whole life. Mm -hmm. It's not a, a reason to sort of beat myself up. It's just a matter of trying to hold myself to account. Well, and, and, and it's reality, right? We all have yeah, a suffering debt. And exactly. if, if we live on the planet, then other beings have to perish for us to continue. So this is obviously something that you're thinking about deeply, as, as do I. Yeah. And so one of the things I think is a, a way of thinking about it that, that Robin shared with me is to say, if my life requires others to suffer, then my life is not mine alone, that I also owe a duty to those who suffer for my existence. I think that is is where I get some of this motivation to try to maximize the good that I can do in my life and minimize the harm that I do in my life. I could say safely and comfortably say that I lived a good life and an ethical life if in some I have brought more joy and happiness to the world than pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. It's not enough just to smile at people as you pass on the sidewalk or to call people on their birthday, you know, just being kind in the world to those around you is obviously important, but that does not change the fact of one's suffering footprint. Right. In your writing, um, you go into this even more deeply because you talk about your personal fear of failure. And here you're talking about failure, not in the shallow definition of social success, but your fear that you will, or that you may fail to not give enough, to not achieve the greatest good with the life that you've been given. Are you right? Um, the world and many who occupy it are in a state of crisis, and I want my life to be an appropriate response to this reality. I think that really nicely gets to the heart of what you're saying here. How will you know if you've succeeded and when? Or is that just an ongoing uh, lifelong that is quest? That something I have <laughs> not figured out yet. Yeah. <laughs> 
all I can do is try. Making this connection to one of my first experiences going back to Tasmania when I was on this permaculture farm and feeling a lot of discomfort with the, the state of the animals there. You know, they were largely comfortable and treated decently, but they were, you know, all eventually going to be killed and eaten um, by the family who lives there. You know, I realized I just have to do what I can while I'm there. And so I, I spent my time showing compassion and kindness to the animals, spending time with them, doing work to improve and enlarge their enclosures. You know, after the month was over, I felt this realization of just the weight of my responsibility going through my trip. Anything that I want to accomplish, any effect that I want to have, I have to get it right the first time because I'm just passing through. And so it means that, you know, yes, I'm going to have fun and I'm going to take time to relax, but also I need to take seriously the responsibility that I have to make my time meaningful. And I think you can see where I'm going with this. Yeah. You can easily scale that up to the, the size of one's life. Hi, it's Susan. Sentient Planet amplifies the voices of the species with whom we share the Earth and the humans dedicated to their urgent defense and preservation. We're providing additional content at patreon.com slash sentientplanet. I hope you'll check it out and consider supporting us for a few dollars a month. Thank you. You know, your book is full of beautiful imagery as well as as well as words. And it really helps your writing come alive. I think one of the most striking photos that anyway for me is the image of a monkey paw in your hand. At least I think that's a, mo a monkey paw. Yeah. Um, tell me about that photo and how you came to take it. Yeah, there are many individual animals who I connected with and met on my trip who really just have a place in my heart. And one of them is this little monkey. He was less than a year old, named Ling Noi, in a sanctuary in northern Thailand. Actually, a sanctuary I'm hoping to go back to this winter if things work out. Yeah, another case of, you know, his enclosure was too small the first day I was there. I, I doubled the size of his little enclosure. The folks who were running it had just taken over the sanctuary from uh, previous owners. And so they were in the process of building larger enclosures and things like that. He was young enough to be not dangerous and to interact with like, you know, adult wild monkeys. And he would always, uh, whenever I came by, he would talk to me and he would motion for me to come over and groom him, which is, you know, a way that they like to connect with others. And so he would come over to the side of the cage closest to me and he would put his back towards the cage and I would always come over and pet him. And, you know, sometimes he would reach his little arm through the cage and he would groom the little hairs on my arm as well, mm. um, which is just one of the sweetest things that I've ever experienced. Yeah. We would just sit there together. He would put his hand in mine 
he's got this tiny hand, you know, that's like half the size of my palm. So I took this photo with his hand in my hand because I wanted to capture just the the magic of that uh, similarity between two primates who have evolutionarily so much in common. And you can see the similarities between the fingernails and the fingerprints and the creases and folds on his palm and fingers just really mimic those on mine, vice versa. Yeah, it just was a really powerful, powerful and clear reminder that we have more in common uh, with the non-human companions than, uh, than we like to think. It's very moving, your description of him reaching out for those emotional connections with another living being, really beautiful. You know, as a long-time animal advocate, you've obviously understood that every animal is a unique individual, and you just told a really beautiful story of being able to form a bond with an animal and actually experience animal individuality. Are there other stories that you would like to recount um, that yeah. really come to your mind and heart? One of the things that was surprising to me was the kinds of individual connections that I made with farm animals. In particular, this chicken named William, William the Brave, <laughs> at a farm animal sanctuary in Spain called Mino Valley Farm Sanctuary, which is another one of the, the most beautiful places I've ever been because of the, the natural beauty and the what happens there. It is just an incredible place and incredible people and incredible animals. This particular chicken named William, he, as a... a a small baby was on a transport truck and fell off. He was found on the side of the highway as a baby chicken and was brought to the sanctuary. He was, you know, then raised by Abby and Mikey, the folks who run it. You know, when I got there, he was still pretty young, maybe six months old, but as large as we think of an adult chicken being because of how fast chickens are engineered to grow these days. He would come running over to me whenever I came into his yard. And it was just the sweetest, most adorable thing for him to, to run over. You know, you might expect that, oh, he was just looking for a handout, hoping I had some snacks. But no, he genuinely just wanted to come over and say hi and greet me and be close to me. Relatively quickly, we developed enough trust that I could like pick him up. He would grab onto my fingers with tightly with his little dinosaur claws for <laughs> stability, and he would just you know sit there perched in my arms, so trusting and so comfortable. He would fall asleep in my arms. You know, it wasn't you know probably since I was uh, six years old with the chickens in my backyard that I had that kind of personal connection with the chicken. Of course, this time they weren't being eaten. They were there to live out their lives in peace and love and freedom for the entirety of their lives. Yeah, really eye-opening, even as a, a longtime vegan, to be able to see up close the individuality of these animals. It's really easy to think of animals in the abstract. I used to sort of argue with people. They would say, oh, well, the animals don't really feel pain or they don't have a maternal instinct. 
And for me, my, my conception of these animals was a little more based in, in fact and a little more nuanced, but it was still an abstraction. It was still based on things I've read. So to make these really meaningful friendships with these animals, it was just absolutely delightful and a, a privilege. That's beautiful. You said at the beginning that you weren't seeking anything when, or not consciously anyway, when you started on your journey, but but listening to you and reading the book and some of the conclusions that you have come to since returning makes me think that perhaps, um, uh, you know, there may be more peace for you in your life now, perhaps, than there was when you left, that perhaps the journey that you undertook further opened your eyes, not just to the large-scale animal cruelty that exists in this world that, as you so rightly said, is just unfathomable, particularly in factory farming. But at the same time, you might have picked up some ideas about how to, while being confronted with that reality, um, still be able to, to live in the world and maybe even thrive in it. I would say that it's a, an ongoing process. Mm-hmm. Um, I would not necessarily say I am at more more at peace than before I left. I would say I have more clarity and direction in my life, but I am still figuring out where I'm going <laughs> by going in that direction. You know, you asked uh, when will I know if I have succeeded in repaying my my suffering debt or you know doing the most good that I can to to be honest, I am not there. I'm not there yet to that place where I know that I've done all I can. You know, one of the the things that I am doing to attempt to have a positive effect was to to write and publish this book that, you know, I hope will inspire people to rethink their role in the world and how they can, you know, minimize their suffering footprint. I also started a dog treat company when I returned to Oregon. This was sort of my first big project going in this new direction. So it was a a vegan dog treat company that donated 100% of its profits to animal sanctuaries. This was Haven Hearts. Yes, it was called Haven Hearts. I was able to donate lifetime sponsorships for 18 animals at different farm sanctuaries. Essentially what I did was chose one animal at a sanctuary and raised enough to donate a lifetime sponsorship for them one at a time. So each bag of dog treats would come with a postcard that had a picture of the animal and the rescue story and information about the sanctuaries. But I also wanted to give animal lovers who weren't necessarily vegetarian or vegan an opportunity to make a concrete positive impact without compromising or sacrificing anything. Instead of just telling them They're bad for not being vegan, instead saying, this is the alternative way that we can treat animals. We can really honor them as individuals and provide them the love and care that they need. Just by buying this bag of dog treats, you are helping. (laughs) (laughs) And they were. Yeah. And so I feel really good about how that went. Unfortunately, the pandemic kind of spoiled. Mm -hmm spoiled my expansion plans and instead sales dropped in half and it wasn't really viable. So it was kind of a bitter, bittersweet to have to uh, wind that down. So Lucas, 
Your book, The Weight of Empathy, it's beautiful. I think it's going to continue to have a great influence on a lot of people, not just about how to reduce their suffering footprint, but for many to even know that they have one. So um, thank you for, for producing it and putting it out into the world. I'm going to buy a few copies of it, hard copies, and give it to a few people as Christmas gifts. I really, really enjoyed it. And thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. For more about today's guest, as well as actions for animal justice that you can take, please visit sentientplanetpodcast.com and join our pod. We're also on socials at Sentient Planet Podcast, and you can support our work on Patreon. Susan Woodward is your host and content producer. Our social media and outreach manager is Ari Simmons. Sound engineering by Liam Wilkinson. Art direction by Janet Grimwade. Intro music, The Spaces Between by Scott Buckley. All interstitial music by Stella Drone. Our love to all beings. Thanks for listening. <laughs>